Purpose, oh purpose. Tell me, what is your purpose? Must have or no chance? Oh, must have. Like it has to be must have. Um, and I'm I'm excited. This seems to be a concept that it's not, I don't think it was a one hit wonder, which people have said, is it when the economy gets to a point where we're talking about recessions, will purpose become less important? I don't think so. We are joined today by the co-founder and CEO of Purpose Worldwide, officially the coolest name, by the way, of any consultancy I've heard. It's super clear. It's super aspirational. And again, I'm excited to, to welcome Lana McGilvray here on the show. Hi, Lana. How are you? I'm great, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I love it. It's um, great to be a guest. Yeah, it's a long time coming. We've been trying to get you on the show and you've been too busy and I've been too busy. And we finally found some time to get together. And And I, I honestly think your your company name is like the word du jour. And I think there's good things about that. And I'm sure you know, there's probably some other things about that. And I, I'd love to get into that if you don't mind. Um, but for starters, uh, you made a, a very conscious decision in 2019 uh, to do a rebrand. I want to know a little bit about, you come from the land of PR first, and you've done a lot of things, but like, I'd love to know, like, why the rebrand? Give me a little bit of the background, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So um, honestly, we we actually launched a new company in 2019, um, more so than rebranding. So yeah, you're right. Uh, so Purpose Worldwide is the name that you're referring to, and we, we are really proud of it. Uh, 2019 was a really interesting uh, point of time in my career. So I've been essentially working since the late 90s. I graduated in 95 and started my career in advertising in New York City. Worked at Columbia Graduate School of Business for a little while, um, leading some research, and then found myself in this land of digital marketing and advertising. So it was really on all sides of it. Um, in late 90s, I helped start an email marketing company that we sold. After that, I was really involved in leading marketing and sales for a variety of digital PR in the, the mid 2000s. So that was a subspecialty for me, even though um, it was what I went to graduate school for was uh, around communications and with a uh, real focus on um, human rights and some other aspects that I didn't get to do as much of early in my career. But um, essentially for the, the majority of my career, I was um, a business communicator. I was communicating on behalf of large technology companies, ad agencies, brands. I really loved what I did. I had a very successful career uh, and I worked with a lot of great people, but I found myself over the years uh, spending more and more of my time doing purpose-driven initiatives outside of work and sometimes inside of work. Things would happen in the industry and I would be naturally attracted to them. So 2019, I was in my 40s and I had some great colleagues um, Two of them happened to be women that I'd worked with. One was somebody that had been on uh, my team for a while, Cassidy. And another was a client named Julie Ginchez. Um, and we were all feeling it. 
we felt that we were very, very good at what we did, but we really wanted to be during our, our daytime focused on purpose-driven organizations and um, reapply what we did well to a set of companies and organizations that we um, wanted to put our talent and teams behind. And so that's when we started Purpose Worldwide. Yeah, I think we're kind of living parallel lives here, except you're a woman and I'm a man. And I, because like I started my career in New York City and I do think there's the, the, the long of it is sometimes you don't get your first choice out of the gate or you don't even know what your first choice is. You know, and I always describe New York City as a treadmill on 10.0. It like it doesn't slow down for anybody. If you can get on and not bust your chin, you can stay for a while and it's just as hard to get off. But as as a great of a learning ground as it is, it still felt wildly competitive, slightly like survival mode, all in the right way. You're just learning and every day is a new adventure. But then when you think about what they always taught us in marketing, they taught us to like, hey, what makes you different? Pick a lane and then go down that lane and go be that person. But because of fear, I think a lot of us say, I want to do this thing, but just in case I'm going to open up the aperture a little wider and we take on projects we shouldn't take on. Or maybe it is just when the world finally slows down. For me, it was writing Return on Courage, which happened right around the age of 40. And someone said, it takes you 40 years to figure out who you are and the next 40 to be that person. I'm like, bam, like, there you go. Here we go. I have to be all in on this concept of courage. And I feel like that's sort of what happened for you. The universe maybe brought you together. You knew it was about being doing purpose-driven work. I absolutely adore this line you have about uh, pioneering a better world for all. And I'd love for you to sort of articulate what that means to you. And specifically, there's the intentionality in the word all. Can you sort of share the line and how you came up with this and what it means to you? Yeah. I mean, I have to go way back and then like catch myself up on why we did that. But, um, and it's interesting because I, I relate to a lot of what you've said. And then I think probably I experienced things a little bit differently too, because I really think about communications and media and digital media and periods that started like, you know, in the 1920s and then the 1950s, we had the first television shows and then we start to move into digital and we, you know, experienced part of that. And, and my wonderful graduate school professor that I'll go back to experienced even more of that because I met him in his nineties. So when we say for all that really goes back to um, what first enchanted me to be a communicator and the, the person that really pulled me up um, with him was a guy named Dr. Everett Parker. And Everett Parker, uh, I was so lucky, he gave me my uh, graduate school assistantship and scholarship, a full scholarship at Fordham University. And he's a little teeny guy, but he um, fought for universal access policy laws, which allowed um, there to be Black people on television, which was not allowed when television first came out in the 1950s. It sounds outrageous now, but some of the first television stations were on KKK property. And this guy had to take it up to the Supreme Court, which he did successfully and say, you cannot do that. You know, we, the, the spectrum belongs to the people back then. We only had a few stations. It's much different now. We don't, it's a different situation. So I was very enchanted on this concept that we could communicate in the best interests of all from like right out of the gate, right out of graduate school. So fast forward, you know, to this point in my career where I have the means to help um, found my own company. I've got a natural client base of um, 
repeat CEOs and wonderful people I've met over the year that want to do business with us. And then something else happens in 2019, which is a sea change for the world, which is the business roundtable, which is essentially all of the Fortune 500 CEOs. They sign on for something that's very anti-Friedman, which was um, the purpose um, commitment that they all made. In 2019, um, the majority of CEOs signed on to drive a purpose beyond profit. And what that meant was that they were changing their own metrics. They were no longer responsible for sheerly delivering to their shareholders. They now had to deliver to the greater society around them, and they were going to take accountability for reporting on that. So that was literally the genesis of Purpose Worldwide. It just, there were a lot of things happening. What seemed like a pipe dream to me in the late 90s seemed possible for the first time in 2019. And that's how we created um, Purpose Worldwide. All right. So every once in a while, I like to write some business haikus. All right. All right. And then this is a, I got three of them for you today, but I'll try to pepper them out when they make sense in our conversation. And this is also a, a good note to the listener that I clearly don't share the questions or the business haikus with our guests. So here's the first one. I, I just love your response to it. And remember, for those who don't know, haikus, five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. So three, three little lines. Are you ready for the first one? I hope so. All right, let's go for it. So number one is purpose, oh, purpose. Tell me, what is your purpose? Must have or no chance? I will do it again. Purpose, oh, purpose. Tell me, what is your purpose? Must have or no chance? And I'd love you to look at it from like, if you're a company today, what is how important is purpose inside that business? Oh, must have like it has to be must have. Um, and I'm I'm excited. I think I don't know if is there a right way to answer this, but I think no. it's must have. And I'm very excited right now that this seems to be a concept that it's not. I don't think it was a one hit wonder, which people have said. Is it when the economy gets to a point where we're talking about recessions, will purpose become less important? I don't think so. I've been in interacting with such amazing companies lately. P&G comes to mind, Unilever, which is you know right up there, potentially competitive. Um, GM, I've been so just really thrilled with what I'm seeing in the marketplace lately. So um, are people doing purpose, taking it seriously? Yes. Like uh, P&G is incredible. Like if, if you, if anybody on the phone has not listened to Mark Pritchard, except he's global brand uh, officer for P&G, he accepted a big award. I think it was for WFA um, maybe about a year ago, but it's a long form acceptance. He has committed that company to standing for equality. And it's, it's, evident across all of their media. Um, they're one of the biggest spenders in the world. They're putting their money where their mouth is and good things are happening because of that. Um, the trickle down with all the agencies that they work with and the folks that want that media dollar, those dollars is just incredible. But now get to like, we're talking about recessions. Are people going to continue to do this? We're seeing a real commitment to measuring return on purpose. So one of the things that's been happening just recently, maybe over the past three months, is I've been tapped by several of the major industry organizations that are really putting 
the research muscle behind um, accounting for, you know, how we're measuring purpose. Can we standardize it? Um, what ways can we do this? So I don't think that the, at least the organizations that I'm speaking to are stepping back. And some people have found amazing ways to measure this anyways. I've done recent interviews with Autodesk um, when Lisa Campbell was over there. Um, I also did an interview recently with a wonderful woman named um, Shannon LaPierre, who's the Chief Purpose Officer for Stanley Black and Becker. Um, and these great folks that are leading these organizations, they're not waiting for standards. They're already like figuring out ways to measure it for their own brand. Um, and they've got not just great stories, but they've got great metrics on the business side as well. Look, I... I think it sounds so obvious, especially your company's called Purpose Worldwide, right? Like it's so obvious to some of us, and but also, like unfortunately, so many others are falling short on how purpose plays. And it makes sense, right? Like it's I always describe it as it's a game of mirrors when it's done right. So for me, I want to spend no time with companies that are not courageous. Right. Like sometimes just keep it simple, stupid, like in your own life, do you prefer to spend time with people that are enriching and care about you and the world around you? Or do you want to spend time with other people? Look, you can't do this with your family, right? Like either your family is the one non-starter. There's going to be some courageous people. There'll be some purpose-driven people and there will be some other people. Okay. But outside of your family, I, I look, there's 340 million of us here in this country and, and, and like, I want to waste no time with people that are not aligned on the idea of what's a pushing of stretching of what's possible doing more. I'm sure you feel the same way. But so I think in business, when you run into those businesses, it is it's a game of mirrors. You're you're putting out the the purpose driven, how important that is, the, the communication on that. I'm putting it out on, on courage. Yeah, I think the sadness, though, is it's also a game of smoke and mirrors for the companies that are doing it wrong, who say they value purpose, but it's like one person in the corner office, like, oh, we have purpose, we've got that figured out, and they haven't operationalized it. Ha are you seeing any of that happen as well? Yeah, but you know what? It's um, it's a losing proposition because there's too many folks holding people accountable, both internally and externally. I mean, we've all seen what happens with Me Too situations at companies. Look what happened at Meta and Facebook with walkouts over certain things that have happened. If you're greenwashing or purpose washing and, and you get called out on it, and they often do because people care about the environment and people care about DEI, you're going to end up on boycott lists and things like that. So it's a slippery slope to really be too vocal around purpose and not to live it. Perfect segue to my second business haiku. Put your seatbelts on. Here we go. You ready? All right. This one's an easy one. These first two are easy, but it's a good starting point. So. I don't know if that was easy before. <laughs> All right. No diversity, here comes real adversity, a fail recipe. Oh, this one I feel so passionate about, very, very, very passionate about, because I think that there's had, first of all, I've been just so fortunate um, to work with so many people that are fighting like the devil, like my old graduate professor said he wanted to go down fighting like the devil for equality. Um, it's become invoked to say that you believe in DEI. And so again, this kind of goes back to that accountability and measurability and that sort of thing. But 
there is a myth that inclusivity is not effective, um, especially when it comes to media. And that is not true. I've been working with some, again, some great folks that have been um, uh, talking about this often. Um, Charles at Reset Digital comes to mind. He's a guy that's driving something that's called universal inclusion in the media industry. And again, he's working with PNG and GM and some giant companies. We've known that inclusivity has been more effective in media since the late 1960s, when some original studies were done around this. We live in a multicultural world, and it's just been it's been like a terrible thing that it's just not reflected in the media that's been served to us. It does not reflect the society around it. So, you know, DI is an absolute requirement. We're we're also starting to see some amazing organizations that want to empower us all and educate us all. So Bridge is another one. There's a woman named Cheryl Deja recently who founded the first 501c6, I believe. It's called Bridge. We are bridge.com if you want to go to it. The board is comprised of some of the top chief marketing officers and chief diversity officers in the country. And their goal is to advance bridge agendas, to hold us, to teach us all how to drive true DEI across our organizations um, in a standardized way. So I, I just, you know what, you're making me recognize that I think without that accountability, like we can't really talk about purpose. Maybe that's that's what it means to be driving purpose. I mean, how much does that come down to the, the leaders running the company too? Like if, is it like, are they really driving it forward? I always say repeaters make believers, right? They have to be consistently talking about it, which means they need their own version, you know, of pioneering a, a better world for all. They need their own sort of lexicon that that plays here. You think it, it starts today from the top or do you think, you know what, now we're seeing sort of a swirl, like the, the, the employees, our employees actually have a say and, if they're if they are doing walkouts, hopefully leadership will actually hear them. Is that what you're seeing? Uh, I'm seeing it's um, both. It's top down, bottom up, absolutely. Um, and I can think of some great examples. Uh, uh, Autodesk is one that comes to mind. When the pandemic began, Autodesk CEO called the company together within days, weeks of the pandemic when there was no vaccine, nobody knew what was going to happen and guaranteed that nobody was going to lose their job at that organization. It got the entire company together to talk about how important talent was for that organization, which was a huge commitment to make an organization at that scale. They also spent more on uh, not-for-profit giving um, during the pandemic, which is a big um, thing to take on as well. So I think from a leadership perspective, absolutely. But we're also living in a world right now, especially again, <laughs> um, thanks to the pandemic. Um, a lot of folks went remote. A lot of Gen Zs graduated from college and remote was the only experience that they had. A lot of the great companies that I've speak, spoken to, um, they created action committees. Those The action was driven from the bottom up. The teams were the ones that got to select what the focus was, and they were the ones organizing and helping to coach um, and mentor up um, into leadership. Curious question. Do you guys look at utilization? Like, are you tracking time? Are you tracking time? We do as a guide, but that's all, when we speak about it, we talk about it as a guide, but I've recently ended up in a bunch of conversations with um, 
new uh, employee prospects, team prospects, in which I didn't realize the anxiety it creates. I'm not so um, actually focused on the time investment because I, I grew up in the digital world where you can almost automate it. You don't have to do much. So it's not... You're not, you're not writing, you're not constantly right. logging in. There's some more automated ways to do that. But where we've retreated, yes, we want to be good to the clients that we serve. And I'm on a mainly retainer model with clients. So time is something that we want to have a measure on. Um, but it is an interesting conversation now because I didn't realize the anxiety it creates for some people. And so that's it's become a conversation point for us at the agency. Do you guys? No, no, we're 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 all on idea based. It's, it's like, look, I've been doing this for 20 plus years. And I, yeah. if I can live the muscle, if I can lift the muscles faster for you, I should, I should I be compensated more. But the reason I even bring it up is, yeah. and, it, and it's interesting, your commentary on anxiety, I, when we find ourselves working on things we're passionate about. Yeah. Why would you penalize somebody? If they want to put right, like, you know, it's the opposite. So to me, like what I was curious and I, this is even a Unilever's or PNG's of the world. Like if I'm madly passionate about making change, right. And I'm at a company that actually has the resources that will let me do it. I I can't imagine there's a job number opened on changing the world, right? Like however much time you want to give. Oh yeah. Right. But you know, you've got it, Ryan, you have, there's another way of looking at this. I was a gymnast. I'm an athlete. I, you know, I'm one of those people that likes to know how many calories did I burn? What did my run do for me? Did I spend too much time doing this or too little time? Penalizing anybody on the team doesn't, is not even close to top of mind. Mm. What's top of mind is, the same thing I would want to know myself. And that's where I'm saying, like, there is some concept of time as a tool. Like if I'm multitasking, which is another thing that when we talk to the team, that's people struggle with. I'm multitasking. I have a ton of things to do. I'm not sure what's prioritized. If you know where you're spending time, you can say, oh, I looked at the priority and I was over indexing on this thing that I have said is a priority three versus a priority one, I need to adjust the way that I'm working. And so, you know, the concept of throwing a timesheet out of, out the window is fine with me and it's nobody, it's not fun, but wanting to help employees be their best and deliver on what's most important for them and the clients, that's something I'm pretty passionate about. And that's, is, is a leader myself, especially at this stage of my career, it's where I hope I can be helpful to help the people that work on the team and the clients not only do the work, but be happy and, and enjoy the work they're doing and feel really fulfilled and that they're growing when they're doing. Well, I love everything about that. Like the, the, again, the, if the intentionality is, Hey, are you aware that lovingly you're spending 170% of your time on this thing that isn't moving the needle for you or frankly for our business, it's, you should be aware of that. And where do we need to make these shifts and these pivots? Or do you need help? Can I assist? Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. You know, the way that we work right now, it, it, it's mission-based. And so, and this is, this is only external, not internal. So like, yeah. I, I always say, I gone are the days where we're an agency of record. We want to be a mission of record. What's the mission, right? And so let's get clarity on the mission. Agency of record, I don't think there's a clarity on the mission. The like once we know what the problem is and we're clear there, we can custom build back our teams and how much time are we spending on specific projects. But I do like where you're going with a bigger team on helping them sort of see how can I help you with spending time on this versus that. 
the the whole point of even bringing it up was I'm curious if companies themselves are tracking when someone's passionate about purpose, how much time the company is spending on just purpose-driven initiatives and just is kind of a tricky word because it should be woven in to the actual product now, right? Yeah, I mean, I can only speak for our situation. And although it varies by client, I do still think that clients come into any engagement with goals and some sort of KPIs. The KPIs can vary greatly by client. Um, But I hear and I feel what you're saying Um, I have completely stolen um, a mantra from my husband, my husband, DJ Stout. He's a partner at Pentagram, but I, I, I believe and live by this, which is our clients hire us to solve the problem and not decorate. And so they may have all these KPIs. And at the beginning, we can try and be good stewards and say, we're going to deliver this many things or the quality of what we're going to deliver is going to be this quality. But at the end of the day, if we do not solve the problem, nobody's happy. And so again, what I try to espouse and share with the team is, Hey, we're going after some goals. So we're running in the right direction and we're not kicking in the wrong goal and and doing use sports analogies all the time. But again, the big picture, like what are we trying to solve? Is this um, Countable is a great client example of ours. They're an amazing platform that's helping Patagonia and Levi's to activate amazing things that drive their purpose beyond profit. They helped Patagonia with time to vote. It didn't matter who you were going to vote for. They just wanted to get you out and vote. They were helping Levi's just activated across CEOs for gun safety. Um, just amazing things. If you know what your client is aiming to do, wants to be known for how they're going to grow, there could be great KPIs everybody thinks they want, but you can come up with ideas 10 or 12 times better than that. And the client's never going to be upset. So Lana, this is show about courage. And there's a famous proverb that fear and courage are kin. You can't get to the courageous choice without first channeling it through fear. Whether you know it or not is another thing, but it's there. So, you know, in life and business, like we're all, we've all had our spars with fear. And you've been on this journey now as an entrepreneur for over two decades, 23 years in the space. Uh, how do you do it? Like how, what sort of, when you think back on the journey, like what fears come to mind that you're like, oh my gosh, like, was it? A mistake until you make it mentality was it never that I was always like just solve the client's problem and I hope the money comes give me a little bit about what it's been like to be you uh, it was dramatic um I think as we were chatting about this um you know I recognize a lot of things are shaped in our childhood for me I had this very irrational feel fear I lost my father when I was 14 I was the oldest of four children my mom had not gone to college luckily my father, um, although an immigrant, was a doctor, and he, we, I did have access at least to get through college without worrying too much about it. But to me, that was the end of the runway. If I didn't just do everything on my own, there was I was going to fail and not have a life at all. So I fear compelled my early years in college and in graduate school. And you know, I graduated early. I waitress through college and graduate school. I think where'd I you go? Jobs. Where'd you go to school? I went to SUNY Albany for undergraduate. And then I went to Fordham university for graduate school. Uh, 
but I think when I worked at McCann Erickson in New York, I was still working three side jobs that they didn't know about. I think I was teaching swimming and maybe waitressing and bartending on the weekends too, just because it was tough to live in New York city if you didn't have the means to do it. So fear drove me a little bit. Um, at this point, I'm not fearful so much economically, you know, my, my mom's lucky. She had four kids that were all like sustained ourselves and happily married and have kiddos and a bunch of things. So she's, she's pretty proud, but now, and I think for everybody, it seems more simple. You mentioned fear, like it's a primal thing, right? Like 5,000 years or however long it is, it's very primal. Like you're fearful and you fight or you flee. That is a, that's something animals do. And so over time I've become very comfortable. And again, with teams, I love teams. I love teaching. I will be teaching in the future. I started out as a teacher. Um, But I think you need to become comfortable with change, embrace it and stick around and not necessarily fight, but certainly don't flee if you can stick it out um, and, and do something. Well, first of all, I have a ton of empathy for you. And like, thank you for sharing that story. And I don't know, I feel like when I hear your story, it makes me think slightly differently about freeze, flight or fight. And, you know, the experts say it's 95% of us flee, right? Or freeze and 5% of us fight. But maybe that's when we actually think we have a choice. And maybe when you were back there, you didn't feel like you had a choice. You had to figure it out. And when you don't have a choice, there are definitely many times. So, gosh, when I was 29 is when I started Fish Tank, my first creative agency. We were four people out of a house. And fear was my best friend, like fear and stubbornness, like the amount of little voices I heard of people in New York saying, I knew Ryan Berman would fail is what drove, it just drove me. It's a motivator, isn't it? It motivated me. And I was like, I will not fail. I will work six days a week, six half days a week. I put off everything else. Like I put off like getting married, like even considering that until I had figured this thing out and I wasn't going to fail and and fear helped me. And so when I hear your story, especially as the first uh, in your family of the, of the siblings, sort of leading the charge and leading the way. Yeah, I hope when you look back at it all, it does make you smile because you're an example for all of us and uh, and you're still doing it. And so that's so cool to hear. Probably a good lead to the third uh, business haiku. Just what you just couldn't wait for, right? Was Was one more. And so here we go, ready? Pandemic problem, inspiration, where are you? Don't have it? They leave. I hope it's the pounds because the thing during the pandemic that I gained was a lot of weight. (laughs) (laughs) Please leave. Please leave pounds. My COVID-19 was on my hips. We we played a lot of Scrabble and had a little wine. Um, My husband and I did, but. uh, So I'll do it one more time. Pandemic problem. Inspiration. Where are you? Don't have it. They leave. No, that's true. Well, they don't have it. They they leave. So I do think that teams during the pandemic were struggling. Um, there was this faction of people that were like, just happy to go home. They've been on the road all the time. I, I was maybe one of them. And then again, the Gen Z's and the millennials that were coming in and didn't never met their boss or their teammates. Um, I had 
just, oh, I just beloved guy on our team that came, he had just graduated from Tulane and he'd moved to Austin from the East Coast where he'd been living with his parents and working for a great organization. And he was just so excited to live out here and be part of the music scene and live with his buddies. Well, none of that happened. And the biggest thing he wanted to do was be in an office and we couldn't offer that either. And it was just so challenging. And, and we were doing things. We were trying to do virtual happy hours and do special things, but it is just so hard. Um, I didn't, you know, all realize what we didn't have when we didn't have it now. It was a hard time. But yeah, I think people had to come up with really clever ways. I mean, you saw the great resignations, just such a good example um, of what happened and we're still hearing it. I talk to clients every single day. And one good thing, I guess, that happened during the pandemic is people just really started to emote how they felt about each other. And, and uh, there were some natural born leaders that weren't necessarily on the leadership team or brand new or an HR that stepped up with, at least within the clients that we work with and did some great things, you know, ranging from simple things like book clubs to wine stays and things, but, uh, yeah, you did have to do things, um, differently. Yeah. I even think, like you said, like, when you think about what, what inspires us or the flip of that is like, if you're not inspired, right. If you're not inspired and you're good, you're out of there. Like your people are not going to put up anymore with this. Yeah, it's funny. My, so I have my newsletter that's coming out this week. This episode will run a few weeks after. And like, I think what I'm going with is like my favorite word in the dictionary and my least favorite word. So I'm not going to spoil the whole thing, but I will give you my least favorite word, which is tolerable. Oh, yeah. I don't want to be called tolerable. <laughs> like, I think it is the most underrated evil word in the entire dictionary. Like if you said evil, you know what you get, but like, I'll tolerate that person. That person's tolerable. That client is tolerable. That behavior is tolerable. It is a slippery slope to badness in every direction. Right. And it is the opposite of inspiration. If you are, if you can think of a, you're picturing a person right now, please don't let it be me. Right. Like, and you're like, well, that, that, that person is tolerable. Like that behavior was acceptable before the pandemic. And now I think, we're all having honest conversations with ourselves going, no, no, tolerable is not the answer. And if I'm talented, I'm gonna go find someplace that does inspire me or a person that inspires me. Right? Is that what you're seeing? Yeah, and well, not only that, uh, I am so tender about people in general as you probably um, can guess. But we owe it to each other too. You know, we've got a team, and the the bad apple concept is one that I think about sometimes. You you, we had a recent. Um, I went through a recent situation in which um, an employee decided that this wasn't the right career. That PR just was not the right career for them, um, which is a fantastic recognition if you believe that you there's another calling. Um, and we just had to address that together sooner rather than later, um, because there was a bunch of people here that it is the right career for them. And so, you know, we need to be able to foster those sorts of things. And then on the client side too, you know, I grew up in a world, maybe you did too, where you never fired a client. Well, that's not the case anymore. Um, especially, um, it's, I've become more maternal over the years, but if, people aren't treating your team well, you're going to lose your team and talent's the hardest thing to foster. And so it's just, 
not okay. Do you see yourself as courageous? I, I, I do. I do. I've gone through some experiences um, in, in life and health issues and family. And I think courage has been something that I've developed more over time. I was not always courageous. Like I think my mom described me as ragdoll, like at one period in my life, because I was so impressionable. Uh, but I don't feel that way at all anymore. And uh, if you weren't doing this, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? I think about that sometimes, and I would definitely be teaching uh, and maybe spending a little more time outside doing triathlons and hiking and, and doing the things that I just love to do in my free time. All right, hold on. I need more on this triathlon thing. Like, are you a professional triathlonist? Is that the word? Triathloner? I am definitely not a professional triathlete. I would say that I am an aspiring triathlete and an admirer. Uh, I actually started them out here in Austin after I moved here from New York. And we get a lot of um, triathletes from Colorado. And so during my first several, I was just finishing uh, in about twice the time it took the winners. So I was very inspired by what, about what I saw around me, but I'm by no means a professional triathlete. Thank you. All right, good triathlete. Now I know for the next, that that's the word. I didn't know what the word was. What are you afraid of? And I don't mean like in a, I'm afraid of snakes way. I'm afraid of running out of time with the people I love. Isn't that the thing that we should all be like most afraid of? Um, there's, that is the balance. I think that we all need to just recognize, you know, kids are getting older, families getting older. I, I love the people that I'm with. So yeah, afraid of running out of that time. I don't know if I'm justifying it because I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old in the house and I have blink, blink and you'll feel it. <laughs> oh, I know. I, I, I acknowledge that answer. Right. But I also acknowledge that my definition, my hope for one of them, I'm sure one of them will not be like, so if I get 50%, we're good is I do want my kids to live a courageous life. I do want them to go live an adventure and report back. And, um, I don't, you know, obviously I live 3000 miles away from my family. So if that is a choice that one of them makes, I would be completely at peace with that. By the way, if they're older and they're listening to this now, that doesn't mean you can't live next to us. That's cool too. <laughs> but but I I want them to go have their own collection of experiences and go see the world. I think you talked about teaching. I don't know a better teacher than you collecting the senses and the smells and the seeing it with for yourself and then bringing back that collection. So that's at least where I'm going. Lana, I, I've this was a very fast 35, 40 minutes. Uh, thank you so much for joining. Um, please keep me in the loop on, on all the great stuff you're doing. You're based in Austin, right? That's right. We're headquartered in both Austin and Boston. So we have dual headquarters. And, and okay, I'll, I'm going to turn this over to you. There was like one aha takeaway. And I always like to think if someone has chosen to keep us in their ears to the 40 minute mark, right? They're in, they're in on purpose. So like, what's your takeaway for them? I think it goes back to, you know, if, if you're really courageous, um, do what you care about. You know, we're, we're, we don't have much time um, on this planet together. So um, courage isn't necessarily a daunting thing. It should be something that allows you to spend your time doing the things that you care about and having the, the 
biggest impact. And thank you for giving us a little bit of your time. I appreciate you. Thanks, Lana. Thank you.